What's up, everybody? It's Pastor James. Welcome back to the Midweek Bible Study. Today, we are going to finish up chapter 1 in 1 Corinthians. And uh, Paul begins to address many of the issues that's going on inside the church in Corinth. Let's go ahead and get started so we don't waste time. Uh, We're going to start with verse 10 and read through verse 17 to begin with. It says, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church, rather be of one mind, united in thought and purpose, for some members of Chloe's household have told me about your quarrels. My dear brothers and sisters, some of you are saying, I am a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I follow only Christ. Has Christ been divided into factions? Was I, Paul, crucified for you? Were any of you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. For now no one can say they were baptized in my name. Oh yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus, but I don't remember baptizing anyone else. For Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the good news, and not with clever speech, for fear that the cross of Christ would lose its power. All right, well, right here, Paul starts off with appealing to his brothers and sisters. Now, some translations use the term plead. And uh, don't forget that Paul has just established himself as an apostle called by Jesus himself. So when he starts out in the introduction, you know, he, he establishes himself as being called by God to be an apostle. And so Paul definitely has the authority to demand that the church in Corinth do what he's asking them to do. But he is going to plead with them instead because uh, these these people need to be loved. And, and as you know this, you know the old saying says you catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. Um, if you approach people in a kind and loving manner, it tend to has better results than demanding people to do things. People get pretty defensive when you start demanding things. Um, and so it's a lot of times it's a lot better to ask and plead than it is to demand, even though Paul has the authority to demand. So he's going to plead with them lovingly, and he's trying to convince them um, rather than demanding something from them. And he calls them, you got to notice what Paul's calling them here. He's calling them to be united. And this is so important for Christians to understand. Unity in Christ is powerful. Satan knows this. Satan knows that if the believers of God are unified, then they can accomplish so much. They can accomplish anything in the name of Jesus if we're unified with one another. But if Satan can divide us, he can conquer us. Jesus himself said that a house divided against itself will not stand. It will fall. And so when you look at the church in Corinth, what's happening is is that they are fighting and quarreling among themselves. They're arguing over which apostle they follow and, you know, whether or not they just follow Christ. And the whole situation was a mess. And so this first part, we're talking about divisions in the church and and which apostle these people are following and which faction they're a part of. Now, when you look, Paul gets this report from uh, Chloe's uh, people from Chloe's household. Now, now Chloe was a woman whose family had traveled between Ephesus and Corinth, probably due to business dealings. And Paul is believed to be in Ephesus when he writes the letter to the church in Corinth. And so as he's writing this letter, 
Um, he, he's received the, these messages from Chloe's family, people who live in her home, about the church in Corinth. And there's just constant arguing, and it's caused the church to split into different groups. They all choose in their sides. Some followed Apollo, some followed Peter, some followed Paul, and some claimed that they only followed Jesus. And it was a mess, and it was killing the church. And, and you just have to remember that um, the church in Corinth was a very spiritually immature church. I mean, Paul had just started the church like a year and a half ago, um, or he was there for only a year and a half. And so this is pretty soon after he leaves Corinth that he's writing this letter. So at most, the the people in Corinth were saved two years. And so you just got to take into consideration how difficult it must be for people who's only been saved for two years to be in charge of running a church. I mean, we would never take someone who's only been saved for two years and put them uh, as a teacher of a class or leading a ministry at our church or being on the board, um, being in charge of making decisions. We would never let them be pastor. I mean, it, it's it's one of those things that like there is a time of spiritual maturing that needs to take place. And the church in Corinth did not have that luxury. And so... You have these people who have all these different opinions, and so I, I want to communicate this today. You know, it's not wrong to have different convictions. It's not wrong to have different denominations, different theologies. Um, all people are different and receive the gospel in a different way. Now, there are some things that people believe, and, and certain groups of people that they believe, that are harmful and can hurt our relationship with Christ. But, you know, for the most part, when you look around at churches, um, we, we kind of got to give each other the benefit of the doubt to know that we love Jesus. We all want to go to heaven. We all want to serve him. We all want to see people get saved. And those are the things that we really need to focus on. People have different sins. They have different temptations. We need to be forgiven for different things. When you're dealing with people, you're just dealing with a lot of differences. We all have different strengths, different weaknesses, and it's necessary for Christians to be different in order to reach the entirety of the world. I mean, when you think about the seven point something billion people that exist, that's a lot of different people. And so it's going to take a lot of different Christians in order to reach all those different people. Um, so we have to be careful not to focus on our differences as long as we have Christ in common. And that's what Paul is telling them to focus on, to focus on the gospel of Jesus, the cross of Jesus. That's what binds us all together. And so <clears throat> as Paul proceeds, he then goes to, he gets a little more coarse in his uh, calling to the church in Corinth. You know, he starts out pleading, but then eventually he, he kind of gets to uh, a little bit of sarcasm. And, uh, and you see that. He, he begins to challenge them as they're arguing with one another. He, he asks if Christ had been divided. And this is a kind of a sarcastic rhetorical question that wasn't intended to be answered because obviously Christ is not divided in any way. Christ is whole. Christ has always been one with the Father. He was not pulled in different directions. Um, only people are pulled in different directions. And so Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Paul was happy... And he explains this. He's happy that he did not baptize many of the people in Corinth because they were arguing over baptism. They were arguing over the different people that baptized them. And they were saying that, well, you know, well, we're followers of Paul. We're followers of Peter. We're followers of Apollos. Well, we only follow Christ. 
And Paul was just saying that he was just glad that he didn't baptize but a few of them because baptism isn't that important. And and I want to say that again because some of you may have just heard that and you're like, oh my gosh, what did James just say? Like, you can't say that. What I want to communicate is that when you look at the big picture of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you can be saved without being baptized. And you can be baptized without being saved. Does that make sense? Now, if you are saved, you should have the desire to be baptized. It's a public profession of faith. It is a good thing to be baptized. Jesus has called us to be baptized. Jesus himself was baptized to set that example of what we should do to publicly profess our faith in him. So baptism is a wonderful thing. I encourage all Christians to do it. But you do need to understand that there are people in the world who are baptized, but they are not saved. Because it's possible to be baptized without being saved. But you need to understand that you can be saved without being baptized. You can have a relationship with Christ without being baptized. Baptism is not necessary for you to have forgiveness in Christ and eternal life. But salvation is. Salvation is the necessity. Faith in Jesus Christ is the necessity. And this is where Paul, he really starts honing in on and focusing on the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is the only thing that matters, the good news of Jesus. Paul is not preaching against baptism, but it's far more important to preach the gospel than it is to baptize. And Paul talks about this. Christ did not send him. Verse 17, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the good news. And not with clever speech, for fear that the cross of Christ would lose its power. It's simplicity. It's important that Paul is preaching the message of the gospel with simplicity and not with complicated, fancy words and really trying to woo and awe people in following after Jesus. The message of the cross is powerful enough, and Paul did not want to do anything to make the message of the cross lose its power. you got to remember, the people of Corinth loved education. They loved philosophy. They loved fancy talk. They loved to stand up and debate with one another. Paul talks about the simplicity and the simpleness of the message of the cross and, and making sure that we we stick to that fervently so that the message of the cross does not lose its power. There's nothing that we can do as people to bring about salvation. There's nothing that we can do. There's nothing that we can do to entice people. But through Jesus alone is where we get salvation. And it's so simple that even a child can be saved. That that the simplest, most humble, immature child can, can put their faith in Jesus Christ and be saved. And that's the way that God designed it so that everyone would have access to salvation. And so Paul talks about this. And if you change the message of the gospel and you try to make it fancy or complicated or, you know, use tactics in ways to, uh, to make the gospel more appealing, basically what you're doing is, is you're taking away the power of the gospel. It's meant to be very simple. And now I want to challenge you in this. I want to uh, kind of give a disclaimer really quick. There are times 
when you will talk to people where, you know, sitting down and, and really explaining um, some deeper theological issues, explaining um, some very, uh, you know, complicated parts of Scripture and things about God to people may help them come to know Jesus Christ. But in reality, when we're presenting the message of the gospel, we should generally try to keep it as simple and uncomplicated as we can. Paul talks about this because the people in Corinth were trying to make it complicated. And Paul says, no, it's not supposed to be complicated. It's supposed to be simple. That's that's the power of, of the cross. That's the power of the message of the gospel. And so that leads us into verses 18 through 31. So, so let's read it really quick, and then we'll uh, talk about that and finish up. So, Paul continues and writes in verse 18, he says, The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it as the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise, and he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. All right. So as a result of the previous passage, Paul goes on to talk about the wisdom of God and the foolishness of man because the message of the gospel has all the power it needs without adding anything to it. Paul talks about how the message of Christ seems foolish to the world, and and it very much does. I mean, when you look at our culture today, when you start talking to educated people about God and Jesus, they just think you're a moron for putting your faith in him and believing in it. But for people who have experienced the power of the gospel, if you've experienced salvation for yourself and you can testify to the very power of God, you know how powerful it really is. You know how it's changed you. It's changed your life, your desires. It's caused you to give up addictions and sins. And it's powerful. And you know it is because you've experienced. And so God has promised through the message of the cross, through the message of Jesus Christ, to destroy the wisdom of the world and discard the intelligence of the most brilliant people. This is quite a statement for the people of Corinth because they love and focus on education and philosophy and art and speeches and debates and intellect and wisdom and 
All those things are so important to them. But Paul says you don't receive the gospel to get this because God's wisdom is opposite from the world's wisdom. You don't need all those things to receive the gospel, even though many of the people in uh, in Corinth were focused on wisdom and intelligence and things like that. But if you go back to verse 18, one thing I want to call your attention to is the verbiage in the passage 18. And it's not just the translation that, that you use, but it was it was translated correctly in all translations. But, but it's an action verb. The idea of those headed to destruction or the people of the world, you know, headed to destruction is something that is happening. It's something that is taking place. It is an action verb. It is, it's not already been decided. It's not going to be decided. It's happening. It is a work in progress. The rejection of Christ is a work in progress. You don't just reject Christ once or, 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 you know, like, you know, in the past or in the present, it is something that you do constantly. If you reject Jesus, if you've ever heard the message of the gospel and you reject Christ, you don't you don't only reject Christ when you hear it. You reject Christ every day following that because you know the message of the gospel but refuse to follow it and put your faith in it. So the rejection of Christ is work in progress. But for those who are being saved... And notice that it is, again, an action verb. It, those who are being saved, not those who are already saved, not those, those who are eternally secure, not those who made that profession of faith a while back. Because you remember these Corinthians, about two years ago, they all got saved. But now many of them are wondering. that they are. Many of them are refusing to acknowledge Jesus as Messiah. And then others have let sin creep into their lives. But Paul says, those who are being saved, it is also a work in progress. It isn't done. And so when you accept Jesus into your heart, it's not just a matter of doing it in a moment in the past, but you are waking up every day choosing to accept Jesus as your Savior and living for Him daily. It isn't done. It's a work in progress. It's not past tense, but it is present tense and, and it is a continuation of an action that is taking place. The salvation is an act that is still being performed by Christ. It's not a one-time event. It's a lifelong change as a result of the power of the gospel. And I just want to draw your attention to that. And if you go, uh, following that, <clears throat> Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14, when he talks about God destroying the wisdom of man. And there's nothing more frustrating... I don't know if you've ever experienced this before. There's nothing more frustrating than to interact or talk with someone who is, you know, maybe not very smart or they might just be younger and you're trying to give them advice or tell them something and you know, like, if you do this, this will happen and you're trying to tell them. But they just believe that they know what's right and that they're intelligent and they can make their own decisions and you just can't tell them something and and it's so frustrating it's one of the most frustrating things you'll ever experience in your life. We just have to remember this is basically how God feels every day when we as people, when his followers and people of the world shut him out and refuse to listen to him like we know better. It's got to be one of the most painful and frustrating things that God experiences in existence when he tries to reveal truth to us and reveal wisdom to us. We're like, no, that's dumb. That's hogwash. When people of the world say, you mean to tell me that... that Scripture and God's law and Jesus Christ is the best way. 
I make my own decisions. This is my life. What? And God just has to sit back and says, you know what? I made you. I created you. I breathed life into you. But you do what you want to do. I've tried to teach you. I've tried to call you. I've tried to show you the way. I tried to help you understand what I created you for, give you purpose, give you reason for living, and we just reject it constantly. People of the world reject it constantly. Um, you know, even today, like we just value knowledge so much. Um, and, and, you know, even as Christians, we fall into the trap to think that the smarter someone is, the more that they should know about God, when in fact, it's. It's pretty much the opposite. You know, uh, the most educated people in Jesus' day were the religious leaders, and uh, they missed the Messiah. They were looking for the Messiah. They knew all the prophecies. They wanted the Messiah to come, but when the Messiah came, they missed it because they were relying on their education and understanding rather than the revelations from God. Um, you know... It's crazy to think that the most uneducated and simple men in the world ushered in the Holy Spirit in the church that, that changed the world for the past 2,000 years. When you look at the disciples, man, they were really simple people. Uh, fishermen, uh, you know, just honest, hardworking people who weren't that educated. And they were willing to follow Jesus and be taught by the Messiah. Uh, they were willing to receive what he had to give them. And in fact, uh, we find today that the most educated people in the world are the ones who really have disdain for God. They just even hate the idea of God. So, so the smarter people are, um, you know, Jesus said that it's easier uh, for the camel to go through an eye of the needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And I think today, in our day and time, um, you know, if if he was if he was here, I think it would be a very similar uh, statement to be able to say that it's easier for the camel to go through an eye of a needle than for an educated person to enter the kingdom of God because it seems like the more intelligent people are, the harder time they have of putting their faith in God. Um, now, not everybody. Now, there's some rich people who are saved and believe in God and will be in heaven, and there's some really smart people who are saved and believe in God and will be in heaven, but, but for the most part, it seems like a lot of those people have a really hard time. Um, <clears throat> you have to understand that it pleased God to make the message of the gospel this way, to make it so simple uh, that anyone can have it. It pleased God to do that. God loves that he can do miracles like saving people in ways that no one would have thought possible, in ways that people just can't understand. Paul goes on to talk about how the Jews ask for signs in order to believe, and the Greeks seek wisdom in order to believe. And the signs weren't necessarily bad, and the wisdom's not necessarily bad, but placing it as the reason you believe removes your ability to have faith. And you got to remember, as a believer in Jesus Christ, faith is the key factor in making us righteous before God. There are so many things about Christianity that just don't make sense and we have to step out on faith and believe it. Now, if you step out on faith and you believe it and you live it out and you experience the power of God through making that decision to believe it, you can testify personally how it makes sense and how it worked for you. But for a person who's just of the world, who has no experience with God, they have a really hard time seeing how Christianity 
is going to affect them in a way that would be positive and not cause more problems than it does help. So, um, you know, it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to the world. Just take, for example, um, the term Christ crucified. You know, Paul uses this term a lot, uh, talking about Christ being crucified. And sometimes he just says Christ crucified. But if you think about that term, it's actually an oxymoron. Uh, Christ means Messiah, power, victory, glory, splendor. And then you take the word crucified, and it means weakness, death, humiliation, and defeat. So Christ crucified is power and weakness. Or Christ crucified means victory and defeat. Or Christ crucified means life and death. Um, Christ crucified means glory and humiliation. And when you look at verse 23, it's the ultimate oxymoron for someone looking for a reason to put their faith in Jesus Christ to hear that term, Christ crucified, it really doesn't make sense. It's like everything about Jesus kind of contradicts what we understand to be reality or beneficial. But that's the way that God designed it. God made sure that it all happened this way so that anyone who is saved can never boast about something that they did in order to be saved. All we did, all we have to do is believe what God has given us. Believe the message. It always was and it always will be a God thing when we believe in Jesus Christ and experience salvation. So Paul closes out this chapter by talking about the unity that we all have in Christ. Because remember, that's what he's calling them to. At the beginning of this passage, he's saying, listen, you need to be unified with each other. And he closes out by talking about unity again. Um, Jesus is the one that made us righteous. Jesus is the one that's made us pure. He's made us holy. Jesus has freed us from sin. We don't get these things on our own. We only receive them through the free gift of Jesus Christ. And God did it this way so that we would not be glorified, so that we would not receive honor, but that he would receive the glory and honor and recognition. And he wants us to give it to him. That's the thing. And so as believers in Jesus Christ, we are called to put our hope and faith and trust in Jesus, to believe in the message of the gospel, to give him the glory of honor. And when it comes to our brothers and sisters in Christ, not to focus on the differences, not to elevate ourselves above one another, but to really take a step back and say, hey, Jesus is the one thing that we have in common. The message of the cross is the one thing that we have in common. Let's jump on that bandwagon. Let's hang on to it. Let's keep the unity among us. And this is what Paul is calling the church in Corinth to do. Come back together and be unified. Don't let yourselves be split apart. Because if, unif- if you stay unified, you can be a very effective, God-honoring church. If you allow yourself to be divided, you are going to waste away and eventually crumble and fall. All right? Let me pray for you, and I'll let you go. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this day. And thank you for the opportunity to come together and read your word. I pray, Lord, that you would speak into our lives. Help us to serve and honor you in all that we do. Lord, help us not to focus on the differences that we have, but Lord, help us to focus on that one thing that we all have in common, and that is salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ. It is so simple. It's so simple that it's even hard to make sense of, but God, we don't have to make sense of it. All we have to do is believe and trust in it. And Lord, if we live it out, if we trust in you, Lord, you reveal to us in due time how much you love us and how it does work. It may seem like foolishness to the world, But man, it is 100% wisdom. 
and help us to have faith in that and to trust in it and see you working and moving. Jesus, we love you today. We ask all this in your name. Amen. All right, guys. Thanks again for tuning in for another week. We love you. We're praying for you. If you can't be on campus this weekend, catch us on Facebook, YouTube, or podcast. Have a great week.